Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we have a wonderful guest. It is Ben Gordon, and we're going to be talking about five trends shaping logistics. Welcome, Ben. How are you? Great, Joe. Great to see you. How are you? Very good. Very good. I've known of Ben. I think many people probably have known of Ben for his work in logistics and all the finance stuff, and we'll get more into that in a minute. But he is really a great follow on LinkedIn. So for many years, we've been connected and really, really met him. But looking at his accomplishments, very impressive. So before we go any further, Ben, please introduce yourself and your company, companies. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. And you certainly have quite the following on LinkedIn, too. My business, fundamentally, we do one thing, but we have two different components. That one thing is we invest in great people, building great companies in logistics and supply chain technology. We do that through two components. We have an investing side and an advising side. The investing side is Cambridge Capital. We've been investing our own money and then starting to bring in partners over the course of the last decade. We've been fortunate to back some terrific people and companies like XPO in the beginning, Grand Junction, which is now part of Target. Bring, which is continuing to ramp up rapidly, and a, a string of others. And then on the advisory side, we've spent close to 20 years advising outstanding companies in the supply chain world. And that includes giants like UPS, FedEx, DHL, as well as mid-sized high-growth companies along the way, Newbreed, Genco, NFI, and, and a host of others. And so really, that's what we do. It's providing capital and advice to great people and great companies in supply chain. Yep. So with Cambridge Capital, is that considered more like a private equity or VC? Yes, it's private equity and growth capital. We don't do early stage startups, but we do invest in companies that are proven, successful and scaling up. And a good example of that Reverse Logics in whom we just invested is a reverse logistics software company already doing plenty of business with some terrific customers like FedEx BNSF and Toomey, profitable, but looking for a partner, not just money, but also a partner to help scale up. And we've been fortunate to build a team of people with experience, either building or supporting other major companies over the course of their careers, whether Agility or UPS or Kunanagel or otherwise. So that's really what Cambridge does, investing not just money, but also time and resources. And you are based down there in sunny Florida, right? We are, although I love Michigan and I was born there and I have a great appreciation for fantastic people there like you. Florida's pretty good. Well, it's practically the law that Michiganders or Michiganians, whatever you want to call us, go to Florida. It feels like the whole Midwest moves down to Florida. I don't know how you guys stand it for that three, four months that we're down there. <laughs> we have a lot of New Yorkers down here too. So let me just say that the Midwesterners are probably nicer. I Hope I don't offend any New Yorkers listening, but... You know, it was a weird thing. For a long time, it would seem if you go to Florida and you're from the Midwest, you ended up like over on Naples, Tampa, that side, the West side, and all the New Yorkers and Boston and Philadelphia always on the East Coast. And I remember going to Naples not so long ago, so 15, 20 years ago, and it was kind of almost like going to a small town up north. And now all of a sudden, New Yorkers discovered it and the prices have skyrocketed over there. 
<laughs> so yes, we shouldn't complain. Anyway, so tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And give us some career highlights before you started Cambridge and BGSA. Sure. Well, I grew up in Philadelphia and actually my family was from Worcester, Massachusetts. And that's relevant because Worcester was where my grandfather started a truck leasing company called AMI, which he eventually built into a major regional company in Penske. So multiple reasons why Michigan's in my blood and connected to the automotive side of the world. And so I grew up with some exposure to the industry and it wasn't my business, right? I mean, I got to watch it and summer jobs and that sort of thing. But it gave me a reason to look for the world of transportation and logistics. And so I'm not going to tell you that as a little boy, I dreamed of logistics. You know, I thought I'd be a baseball player like many others, but was disabused of that notion. By the time I reached college, I realized I'd hit my ceiling. I went to Yale for college and then Harvard for business school. And while I was at HBS, I wrote a business plan for a software company that would use the internet in order to match freight with capacity. And oh, yeah, wow. yeah, this was early. You know, they say that the pioneers end up with arrows in their back. So we might have been too early because this was what today you would call a SaaS business. Really, it was using the internet to match freight with capacity. And it evolved into a TMS, a transportation management systems company. And so we really were going to 3PLs and saying, use our software in order to help manage your business and accomplish automation and double your business without adding headcount. And that was a compelling pitch for mid-sized 3PLs, but I made a few mistakes. One of them was I underestimated the fact that most 3PLs didn't really want to spend seven figures on software. And so what we had was great marketing, but terrible sales. It was great marketing because the 3PLs loved the idea that we wanted to be the 3PLs partner and not their competitor, but it was terrible sales because they didn't really want to spend the money that we were expecting. And so we had to pivot. In the end, the thing that proved to get the most traction was a drayage management system where we would help steamships with a drayage management system to connect the drayage carriers with the steamships to automate that process, create an audit trail, track everything throughout the process. And ultimately, that's what led to Maersk buying the business. And so, yeah, I learned a few things along the way. One was that what I thought the business was in the beginning wasn't what it was in the end. What I thought was important wasn't what the customers thought was important. Where I spent money wasn't where the market wanted me to spend money. And so those are all parts of the entrepreneurial journey. And in the end, after the sale of Threeplex to Maersk, who would then go on to sell it to IBM years later, I realized that I'd gotten to know the logistics industry very well. And I had a lot of logistics companies who were calling on me and calling on us for advice. They probably valued the advice more than our software. And so that's what led me to start the advisory business and spend the next 20 years of my career building what we have now. Did you just start BGSA first? Started BGSA first, started it 20 years ago, around the time that we sold Threeplex. And my first customer was a mid-sized, at the time, 3PL called NFI. And at the time, <laughs> NFI was a $100 million truck line that had a little bit of warehousing, a little bit of dedicated contract carriage and truck brokerage. And I got to play a small role in helping support their CEO, Sid Brown, and their management team in kind of the next chapter in their growth. And of course, Sid and the NFI team and the Brown family, they've done a fantastic job and they've grown that from a $100 million truck line to a $2 billion plus logistics company. And so it was great to be in a position to get to work with that team and continue to work with that team 
over the last 20 years. So when you started BGSA and then Cambridge, you started to allude to it, but what holes did you see in the market that you said, hey, I think there's an opportunity for me? Well, first of all, I'll just relate to what I experienced when I'd started 3Plex. So I'm not going to say that I was the world's greatest expert at logistics or anything, but I did at least think I knew something about the supply chain world. By contrast, the venture capital, investment banking, and private equity firms that called on us, in my opinion, didn't really understand the space. And it didn't make them bad guys. They were smart guys. But it's like anything. You're going to know logistics better than somebody that spends a tenth of his time on logistics and tenths on everything else. And so I had all these guys calling on me. And I remember one of them said, well, we think you're great. And we really think of you the same way we think of this procurement company. And I remember thinking, TMS is totally different from a procurement company. And I just kind of scratched my head and thought, you know what, maybe there's an opportunity to build an advisory business and an investment business that really is dedicated to this industry. And not because we're smarter, but because we're more focused. And if we focus on understanding all areas of supply chain, transportation, warehousing, technology, everything else across the whole and supply chain, we would be able to bring more value to other CEOs in the space. And just like I, as a founder, found it helpful to have people like, for instance, the team at CNF, now Conway, they were investors and had observer rights in our business at 3Plex. And those guys helped a lot. And so I thought, I'd love to be able to add the kind of value that the CNF, now Conway guys added for me, but also bring more capital and resources. And so that's kind of what gave us the idea. Very nice. Very nice. Well, it is interesting because I talked to Andrew Kelly on my podcast and he mentioned that we're talking about investors in the space. I mentioned that I get a lot of phone calls, people asking questions that were they're either venture capital or private equity. And as you said, very smart guys, and nobody would give them that kind of money to spend if they weren't doing it properly. But they asked some questions that I thought, really, are you really investing in this? Because it seemed almost as like, I have to learn this business. And he said, that's exactly what's happening in some cases. He says, you're given a lot of leeway, but he says, there's also like, go learn that business and tell us where we should invest. And they trust that they can get it done. And I was like, Woo, that is some trust, but you've done it the right way and that you've specialized and actually you from this business. So anyway, on to our topic today, which is five trends shaping logistics with Ben Gordon. So Ben, I know you've got your finger on the pulse because you're investing and advising on these firms with firms in this space. So please tell us what is the first trend that's shaping the space? Well, I think the first major trend is e-commerce, and it's not just shaping logistics, it's shaping our whole economy, and it's reshaping our whole economy. So I think the significance of e-commerce is probably obvious to all, but there is a subtlety to it in terms of how it impacts logistics and supply chain. I want to share that. So first of all, a lot has been made of the fact that COVID compressed the growth in e-commerce, and McKinsey captured a lot of attention with their study that showed that the first quarter of COVID compressed 10 years of e-commerce growth into that three-month period. So from 2009 to 2019, e-commerce penetration as a percent of retail grew from 5% to 15%. Okay. And so the thought was it would take another decade for 15 to go to 30%. But actually, 15 went to over 30% in just the first quarter with COVID. And so 10 years of e-commerce penetration compressed into three months. Now, what's interesting about that is what does it mean for logistics and supply chain? One thing that it means is that 
the supply chain required to support that e-commerce has just exploded. And I'll give you a terrific example. We talked about this at our annual conference. So in January, we have an annual conference in Palm Beach at the Breakers. For the last 15 years, it's been in person. This January, we had to do it virtually, but we still got to do it and had close to 300 CEOs and supply chain leaders. And one of the topics of discussion was this very issue, Joe. So it turns out that e-commerce growth fueled some surprises in terms of the stock market. So if you think about the big winners over the last decade, I mean, XPO would have to be at the top of the list. XPO grew from about a $75 million value business 10 years ago when Brad Jacobs bought control to what's now about an $18 billion or so value company today. But in the last year, they were at the big winner. The big winner, somewhat surprisingly, it was actually the category of parcel. So FedEx, UPS, and DHL as a category grew over 40%. And in particular, if you look at the market value for those three companies, Parcel basically grew from 230 billion to over 340 billion, okay? So they added $110 billion of market value. And you gotta ask yourself why it's enormous. And the reason is Parcel for the delivery of what gets bought online. Yeah, it's crazy to me, Ben, that you mentioned DHL, but they don't deliver intra the U.S., right? So that you can ship from them if you're shipping out of the U.S. or back to the U.S. I'm kind of amazed. It seems as DHL made that investment years ago, I think with an overnight, and they were going to come to the U.S. and they were here for a while and then they left. It seems like they got here like 10 years early (laughs) because, but I'm just wondering, when are we going to get like a third? I mean, is Amazon considered a third parcels delivery right now? I think they are. You tell me. Question. I think they are too. But I think two things. First of all, I think Amazon Logistics, we talked about this at our conference three, four years ago. We said Amazon Logistics today is kind of like Amazon Web Services was in 2006, which was at the time it started as something small. It seemed like a creative idea and just something that Amazon could use to support their own customers. And it's expanded to become really the profit center all of Amazon. I think Amazon Logistics is still uh, on that trajectory of doing the same thing. That point is no longer controversial like it was three or four years ago, but absolutely, I think they're right up there. It's interesting. There's, I forgot the name, but many, many years ago, I wrote an article on these five alternatives to UPS and FedEx. And it was like these, I think Speedy was one, these small regional parcel players. And I'm always surprised that somebody like you, somebody, a money guy, or some guys who say, hey, we're going to cobble together a competitor here. To me, I mean, even if it was just, hey, we only delivered on the East Coast or only deliver stuff from these selected markets, it seems weird that somebody hasn't stepped in. I think there are people that will step in. I also think you'll see, I mean, challengers to UPS and FedEx, you may well see some of these regional parcel companies get cobbled together into a national challenger. That's what I just said. On track. LSO, they're basically five or six major regional players, and GSO is another one, and LaserShip's another one. Why are there five or six? Why don't those join forces and become one or two? Stay tuned, is what I would say. Time will tell. So, yeah, no doubt about this e commerce is a huge one. And I think what's also interesting to me, Ben, as just a consumer, I liked Joseph Banks shirts. I like the traveler shirts, they don't get wrinkled. So, I remember going to the store and then being closing all their stores. And I called, I said, where the hell are your stores? I think they went through some sort of restructuring. But what's interesting is 
they really are pushing to go online. I always kind of thought as long as there was consumers like me who wanted to go try a shirt on, that I have that chance. Not so fast. I think this COVID it really moved their strategy up a year or two. So e-commerce is the first one. That's predictable. What's the second one? I think it's closely related, right? <laughs> well, actually, given your comment about buying clothing online, one of the things that's happening with more clothing sold online, there are more returns online. And so the second topic that I would highlight is reverse logistics and returns. And what's interesting is 6 to 8% of what gets bought in a retail store gets returned. But on average, close to 30% of what gets bought online gets returned. Now, that's an average. So much like the guy who drowned in an average of three feet of water, it masks some high numbers and some low numbers. But that 30% is higher in the category of apparel, like those shirts that you described. And so you think about it, returns is a trillion dollar global market. E-commerce growth of 20% means returns are growing at 20%. That return rate of up to 30% online means there's a big problem and a big pain point. Also, importantly, the cost to return something is actually approximately 10 times the cost of the forward logistics. And that's because you're doing something on a one-off basis instead of on a pre-planned basis. And instead of being able to plan and have the full truck and route optimization and everything that goes into a carefully choreographed supply chain operation on a returns basis, a lot of that gets tossed out. So much more expensive, much less efficient, much bigger pain point. And if you're not careful, a retailer or a brand can go from making money to losing money online. And so that's a big problem and a big pain point. It's also a great opportunity. And so companies that are focused on returns and reverse logistics, I think are poised to capture a big need. We saw this over the last 40 years, really the most powerful company in the space to emerge was a company called Genco, which Herb Shear built, did a fantastic job. FedEx ultimately bought it for $1.4 billion. And it really reflected the fact that this was not just a powerful company in an important category, but also that it belonged integrated with these other areas. So just like FedEx has been a big winner in parcel and e-commerce, it made sense that their reverse logistics side, Genco, would be a second step in their strategy. Well, but it's not just good for Genco and for FedEx. It's good for plenty of others as well. Here at Cambridge Capital, we invested in a company just a few weeks ago called Reverse Logics, and they're a software company a SaaS provider focused on returns management. So they go to companies, whether they're major logistics firms like a FedEx or major brands like a Tumi, and they say, let us handle the returns problem for you. And if it's a logistics customer like FedEx, it becomes a profit center. And if it's a brand or a retailer, it becomes a way to solve a pain point. And so that's a pretty big category in the world of supply chain today. Right, right. If you walk through any fulfillment center, and I've walked through quite a few, as you're walking through, you can always see where the returns are because it was somebody ripped open a box, then put it all back in, taped it up the best they could and sent it back and not necessarily professionally packaged. And then somebody has to open that up, check and see if it's damaged, dirty, whatever. It's not easy. It's not easy. And I'll tell you another thing. And this is separate from logistics, but I think companies who are in e-commerce have to do a better job of sizing because I've watched the home shopping network. They spend an enormous amount of time talking about if you're five foot 10 and 180 pounds, this fits this way. If your foot's a little wide, wear this kind of shoe. And I always think this is the right way to do it because what you don't want is those returns because they are wildly expensive and somebody has got to manage them for you. I like, what do you call that company? Reverse logics? Reverse logics. That's right. 
Excellent. So, Ben, what is the third trend that's shaping logistics? Well, if returns are important, the forward logistics in support of e-commerce matters as well. And so that I would call last mile. And the last mile has always mattered, but it's never mattered more than it does today. So the more you buy online, the more somebody has to deal with the last mile. And the more, as COVID demonstrates, you want things brought to you instead of you going to the store or you going to the restaurant or you going somewhere else, the more last mile matters. And so last mile has become a tremendously important area. A couple of interesting things to note about last mile. One is that in the world of B2C supply chain cost, 41% of all supply chain dollars that are spent go to last mile. So it's a big deal. Whoa, that's a big number. Huge number. And I'm not the only one that knows it. I mean, if you look at the acquisition activity, seven, eight years ago, there wasn't a lot. I mean, XPO bought 3PD, MXD bought HomeDirect, then XPO bought UX. So there were you know, a handful of deals. But just in the last year, you saw Forward Air by Linstar, Target by Deliv, JB Hunt by RDI Last Mile, US Pack by Freight, Costco by Innovel. I mean, there's just a flurry of activity. And the reason is obvious, which is all these guys realize the growing importance of last mile. Well, speak about the post office in that regard, because I know they do a ton of final mile, and it seems as if at different times they've become overwhelmed with it. They have. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. So Louis DeJoy, the postmaster general, actually spoke at our conference in January. We got to do a fun Q&A session with him. And I've known Louis for a long time. Louis was a client of ours at BGSA over 15 years ago as he was building New Breed. And Lewis is somebody, he's taken a lot of flack in the last year, just given issues with the post office. But I will tell you, he's a very smart guy. He's a very disciplined business leader. And he really sees his mission. And he just articulated it, not just at our conference, but also in laying out his 10-year plan a few days ago as follows. His view is post office is slated to lose $158 billion over the next decade. And that's a staggering number. Lewis views it as his responsibility as a U.S. citizen, as well as the Postmaster General, to bring that number down to a level such that the post office eventually gets to break even so it's sustainable, so that we as taxpayers and American citizens have a business that works and a post office that works. And one of the key ways of doing that is by driving more density into that supply chain network. So the post office delivers to every home and business in the entire United States, over 150 million locations throughout the 50 states. And so Lewis says, look, I got to go to those places and I've got a post office network going to these places, whether they have one package or a hundred, one parcel or a hundred, you know, one piece of mail or a hundred, might as well drive more density into that. And so part of the plan is to drive more density. Part of it's to do a better job of picking up more volume and also gaining more revenue on the parcel side. And then part of it's to be able to do not just forward, but also reverse logistics. So post office is an important part of the last mile. And so I think you're absolutely onto something there. Yep. It's interesting. I didn't see Louis DeJoy talk about it, but I think I saw the last postmaster general talk on one of the business shows. And he came from the business sector too. And I remember him saying, if you told me I had to make this lose less money or even make money, I would close tons of locations. And to your point, they don't have a choice to say, I'm not going to deliver to Northern Michigan because there's not the density. And he said, it even goes further than that. When you talk about closing a post office, 
you hear from the congressman and says, hey, you're not closing a post office in my district. Plain and simple. And what I've thought, again, this is not my job. (laughs) Your friend Lewis has got a big job. I've thought at some point it should have made sense that they go back to what it used to be. You go to the general store and pick up your mail. To me, it doesn't make sense that we have post offices everywhere, but that's a separate topic. But anyway, they're an important part of Final Mile. And I also say this, I say this every time Final Mile comes up, we are used to as logistics and supply chain people delivering to professional receivers. When you're delivering to a home, they are not professional receivers. When someone knocks on your door, you go, uh, who is that? Am I going to answer the door or not? Unless you know you're getting something, a lot of times you don't answer the door. There's barking dogs, there's broken addresses, there's gates. There's a whole bunch of problems that go with that final mile. Then we all know about the theft. So there's a whole bunch of issues we still got to fix there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one solution that could be great for the post office, but that's also great for us on a commercial basis and great for businesses is the role that last mile software can play. And that's an area where we've been active and where we've been an investor. We invested in a company six years ago called Grand Junction, which was really a SaaS solution for last mile. It was going to retailers. And the pitch was, you as a retailer, a Home Depot or a Target or somebody else, you need to give your customer an experience that's every bit as good as the Amazon Prime experience. Exactly. We expect that now. Exactly. Amazon trains you to expect more. And so Rob Howard and Grand Junction did that. We played a small role as an investor and a partner. And ultimately, Rob built something great and Target ended up buying it two years later. And that certainly was a terrific reflection. Today, we invested in Bring, which is another last mile SaaS company that's also doing a great job. Having won customers like Walmart, McDonald's, Panera, and others, really, their idea is use software to give major retailers, brands, and others the kind of software to be part of a coalition of supply chain capabilities that, again, allows them to compete with an Amazon-like experience. And then one other thing I'll add, some people want the software, but some people want a managed service, including access to drivers. And for those that want the managed service and access to drivers, another company that we back, Delivery Circle, is very strong in that arena. So I think whether companies want software only or the managed service, there's lots of opportunity in last month. Yep. There's another thing that comes up occasionally on my podcast is when we've got, and maybe this is part of the Amazon effect, is we have sometimes have investor money making, so they say, hey, we're just going to gain market share. And when I say I want toothpaste delivered and somebody says, I will deliver that overnight to your house for free. And we've kind of gotten used to this idea. And I almost think at some point when somebody says it's $8 to have your toothpaste delivered, you go, oh, I'm not doing that. I mean, I think we are a little spoiled that way right now. And I keep thinking as consumers, there's going to be a day when somebody says, does that really make sense that I deliver toothpaste to your house? Can't we wait till next week when we deliver a lot more? And I think one of the things that's going to come up related to that is going to be related to sustainability, because I think at some point beyond just a dollar amount, I think somebody's going to be able to give you a sustainable, some sort of measure and go, hey, do you really want this or do you want to be a good citizen of the world? But that's a little off track. (laughs) Well, I think that's right. Interestingly enough, being a good citizen of the world feeds into the things that we've been talking about. I mean, as an example, reverse logistics companies, whether reverse logics or Genco or others, can reduce the amount of consumption in the world because if reverse logistics is done better, fewer things get thrown out. Therefore, fewer things need to be bought more than once. That reduces unnecessary excess production and carbon footprint. And similarly, Great last mile and logistics companies can boost density 
if the same truck has more in it and the same post office delivery guy is carrying twice as many packages as he otherwise would, again, you're delivering more without having to add more truck. There's an ESG component and a do good and do well component to this as well. What do you mean by ESG? ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And that phrase, ESG, has really taken off in the last year, partly because investors like the idea that they're investing their money in things that are both an opportunity to do good as well as to do well. The so-called double bottom line, where you're measured not just against financial performance, but also environmental or, or social. That's something that logistics has a lot to contribute. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because at some point when a consumer buys from a brand that values, I'll say the triple bottom line, people, planet, profit. And when you buy from a company like Allbirds or Patagonia, at some point they're going to say, wait, they're buying from me because I have a reduced carbon footprint over my competitors. They're going to ask the 3PL that they're working with. They're going to ask the warehouse that they're working with, what are you doing? And I've said this many times, when they ask, it's too late to fix it. You have to start now. I have a daughter in her 20s. She went to school for a sustainable business. She learned triple bottom line. That was her degree. And a lot of companies are now moving in that direction. So ESG, just say one more time, Ben. ESG, environmental, social, and governance. I love it. So- What's the next trend? So I think e-commerce fulfillment is the next trend because really it's about the process from making your order to figuring out how it gets to you. It's sort of the warehouse step that precedes that last mile step. And if you think about it, e-commerce fulfillment, in the good old days, you had warehousing companies. And over 100 years ago, 125, 130 years ago, you had what's now called the IWLA that was established, the International Warehousing and Logistics Association. Originally, the IWA was for public warehousing. You had a big box and different people that would rent space, and that was the way it was. Well, now you have these fulfillment facilities where there's quick turn, high velocity. You measure how long inventory sits, and in a quick turn fulfillment center, might be a couple of weeks, might be a month. It depends on exactly how fast moving the underlying products are. And e-commerce fulfillment companies really have become a backbone for supply chain. You could argue that Amazon is as much an e-commerce fulfillment company as they are a tech company. And so who are the winners in that? Well, you had early winners. My friend Scott Dorfman started a company called InnoTrack, which he built, took public, sold. It's now part of Radial, really the largest pure play in fulfillment. Now you have various startups that are ramping up, ShipBob, which uh, of course, raised money and captured attention when SoftBank came in. You know, ShipMonk is another. There are kind of a host of them. And what they have in common is that when you buy something online, they're providing the warehouse-based infrastructure to support it, the pick, pack, and ship. That's a big area. It's still very fragmented, wide open. There are lots of companies in that realm. In my view, the winners will be those that, A, know how to do the fundamental logistics, and you'd be surprised how many tech companies gloss over that. (laughs) Two, that understand how to integrate with and connect into the e-commerce side so that when an order comes in, it automatically gets plugged into the fulfillment system. Three, the analytics in order to manage and measure what happens. And then four, of course, is troubleshooting because when things go wrong, which often happens, they've got to be able to have the capacity to do that. So the companies that I've looked at, I don't have anything negative to say about any of the companies that I've mentioned, but every single company in this ecosystem has its strengths and weaknesses. The ones that are more software-based 
tend not to understand the operations as well, the ones that are operational based, and not to have as strong of a software offering. So that's an overall opportunity that I think continues. Right. And I just, my last podcast was with Fulfilled and they're down in Huntsville and they do a wonderful job. And one of the things I know AJ, the founder very well, one of the things he always said is that's all we do is direct to consumer e-commerce fulfillment. And what's interesting is there's a lot of warehousing companies that have specialized in traditional warehousing. Maybe it sent stuff to retail locations and they're moving into that. I have no doubt someone will be very successful. But at this point, some of those companies, they might not do a ton of parcel. They might not be used to sending out thousands of parcels in a day. They're used to doing 30 LTL trucks or 10 truckloads. So there needs to be that expertise. They need to understand the technology. And I think there's some other issues that keep coming up on my podcast. One is you mentioned Bring, you mentioned, we didn't talk about it now, but Shipped or Instacart, some of these other businesses that deliver to homes or DoorDash, those people I don't know what exactly they make, but let's just say they make 15 or 20 bucks an hour doing it. Which would you rather do that or go work in a fulfillment center? So those fulfillment centers are going to struggle if they don't get a little more automation. And I think what they're also going to recognize before too long is they're going to need automation because I can tell you this from my automotive experience. You can't ask somebody to do a job that is backbreaking for 10 years in a row. So you're going to end up with this very transient workforce that tends to be young And there's going to be injuries. And we need to concern ourselves with that beforehand. Because we just talked about sustainability. If you say, hey, I got my cheap toothpaste to my house, that's not worth it if the company says, yeah, we have a whole bunch of people who are living a bad life in our dark warehouse. So we have to figure that aspect out too. One other thing that keeps coming up, I had the guys from Robot on my podcast, and they always say they want to be the king of the pack station. So when you're packing stuff, that's where the opportunity for putting the wrong thing in the box. and also. What can happen is somebody says, hey, you missed something. I was supposed to get three pens and two pads of paper, and you only put two pens and one pad of paper. Well, what do you do? You give it to them. Well, if you had cameras that had that, here's that order, (laughs) I can show you it was packed and taped and shipped, because that is going to become an issue also related to those returns. So lots of issues, lots of opportunities, I guess. Definitely lots of issues and opportunities. If it was easy... There'd be no opportunity. (laughs) So what's next? What's another trend that is shaping the logistics world? Well, the fifth and final one that I would highlight is medical logistics and the cold chain. And COVID has thrown this into sharp relief because everybody all of a sudden realizes the significance of this. I mean, the fact that 15 million J&J doses were destroyed because of a supply chain error a few days ago is a case in point. Think about that. Think about the lives that might be lost because of a supply chain error. So you hate to be in the position where people only recognize your importance when something goes wrong, but (laughs) that's kind of the way it is in the supply chain world. And so, but more broadly, supply chain can be a force for good in delivering life-saving solutions. And we had this conversation at our conference in January where we got to interview Stefan Bonsell, the CEO of Moderna, and we talked about the Moderna supply chain. And One of the things that Stefan talked about was the fact that while there is a cold chain that supports what Moderna and Pfizer and others can do in the U.S. and Western Europe, it's not so easy in the emerging markets, Latin America, Asia, Africa. And so there's a real need and a real pain point around the supply chain to support that. What does that mean? Well, part of it's the refrigeration and whether that's shipping giant refrigerators because the temperature demands are so extreme in order to support that 
or more conventional refrigerated trucks and warehouses and the kind of, but remember, it's all end to end because your weakest link is what can take the whole system down. So that's part of it. Part of it's the data in analytics in order to ensure that you have maintained a level of compliance throughout the whole process. So if you fail to keep compliance and you therefore put yourself in a position where the FDA says that you haven't certified chain of custody at every step in the process, guess what? I mean, millions or tens of millions or more in the case of that J&J example of vaccine or other product might end up getting scrapped. And so the cold chain is a vital area. And just to give you a data point, if you look at the total spend on global cold chain monitoring, okay, right now, there's about $5 billion of spend. Again, that's just the monitoring. I'm not talking about the warehousing, the transportation, or the logistics. So the value of this cold chain and the importance of solving it is a big deal. Now, there are giants that do that, like Sensatec, which is a division of Carrier, a close to a $20 billion public company. Then there are small startups and challengers like Tive, and then there are tons of others in between. We're not an investor in any of those, although we're looking at plenty, and we think there's an opportunity there. I think, in my mind, multiple billion-dollar companies will emerge in this cold chain arena because the problem is so big, the importance is so significant, and getting it right really makes a difference. Right. I just recently had the guys from Lineage on my podcast. And actually, I think their headquarters is here in Michigan, but that almost doesn't matter where they're headquartered because they are everywhere. And I mean, I think they're an international company now. And they talked a lot about the importance of the technology when it comes to the cold chain, because in the past, we didn't have necessarily all the monitoring. And I always say this because it reminds me of a story I heard years ago. Somebody said some guys were told they were supposed to deliver on a Friday a big truckload, wasn't able to deliver. Somebody said, make sure that stays frozen over the weekend. They come in Sunday night, they find out, oh, it didn't stay frozen. Somebody turned this truck off, turned the trailer off. Well, they look around and think, well, no one's going to know. They start that truck back up, get it cold. Well, we wouldn't have that happen today because we have the monitoring that would warn us, hey, this is warming up. That would have been $70,000 worth of food wasted. And you think about it, if you're that guy in the warehouse, do you go... Hey, boss, guess what I did today? I just I just wasted $70,000 worth of food. Better off to take the chance starting that truck up again. And that's a horrible thing. But in the developing world, we have a big problem with how do we get food from the fields to the tables without it going bad? And I think there was some countries having as much as 30 or 40% go bad before it got to the consumers. Can't have that. It's a staggering number. Lineage is in a good place to be an adopter for that. Great company, know them well. And we had them at our conference in January as well. And they're smart guys. So I'm glad that you posted them. Yep. So Ben, why don't you summarize this? Give us your final thoughts and then tell us a little bit about what's going on over at Cambridge. Great. Well, I would summarize this as follows. The last year was the busiest year in the history of logistics and supply chain technology investing from a private equity standpoint, a venture capital standpoint, and a public market standpoint, across the board, record levels of interest. It's sort of like the joke about the guy who says, it took me 30 years to be an overnight sensation. (laughs) That's kind of the story for our industry, isn't it? Everybody, I think, has discovered the importance of supply chain, including the investor world and the markets. But there are long-term friends and there are fair-weather friends. And when the next downturn comes, the next correction comes, I think Smart companies will want to have partners that really understand the business and can really be value-added partners. And that's the niche that we've carved out. So, Joe, what we're doing right now is we're being very selective in looking for great companies that are outstanding in different areas of supply chain and technology where, A, we think they're winners, 
B, we think we can add real value. And C, we think these are businesses that we'd be happy owning forever, not because that's our hold period, but because we never make an investment thinking, great, let's flip this in a year, flip it in two years. That's happened before, like with Grand Junction, but it wasn't the plan. The plan was invest in a person and a company and a team that you'd be comfortable being partners with forever. And so what we've done is we've assembled a team and our partners and advisors include people, Esal Sala built Agility Logistics to a $5 billion company. Dave Stubbs built Kuninaga Lead Logistics to be a major company. Remus Kapeskis ran R&D at UPS. We have operators that have great long-term track records of really building value. Then we have people that have been great investors. Matt Smalley at Insight deployed over a billion dollars at Insight Macquarie over the last decade, among others. And so I think for us, it's being able to give great entrepreneurs access to the operational depth and the investment experience so that we can be great supportive partners and can really help those companies achieve long-term growth and success. And it doesn't mean that we'll always be the right fit, pay the highest price, or be the maximum transactional partner in every detail. But what we really strive to be is for the companies that match up for us, the best long-term strategic partner. And I think judge us by the long-term, not the short-term. Very proud to have had the opportunity to work with some great people like the ones that I've mentioned, but we're just getting started. And we think the companies that we work with and support over the next year or two could really be transformational as we look to support the next wave of billion-dollar-plus companies in supply chain. Well, yeah, we could judge you by your company, and it's a pretty good company, Ben. So what I'll do is I'll put a link to your website and a link to your LinkedIn profile. And by the way, if you don't already follow Ben on LinkedIn, please do, because I asked him when we spoke, I said, you must do your own LinkedIn because he has some fantastic insights. And I think if you listen to the podcast, you will love what he writes. One other thing, Ben, you mentioned that you had some notes from your conference that you could share. If you give me those notes, well, first I'll talk about those notes and then give me a link to them so I can put them in the show notes. Absolutely. So at our annual conference, BGSA Supply Chain Conference, it's an invitation-only event. We typically have close to 300 CEOs and supply chain leaders. And this past year, the negative is that we had to do it virtually because of the realities of COVID. But one positive is we're able to reach people from further away who might not have otherwise made it. I'm pretty sure that Stefan Bunsell from Moderna, as much as he might have wanted to talk about supply chain... (laughs) probably wouldn't have had time to fly down to Palm Beach and join us for a full day. But sharing his insights by the virtual conference, absolutely. And similarly, the percentage of international participants was great. And the dialogue reflected that. So if you go to bgsaconference.com, and then you can go to the highlights tab or bgsaconference.com backslash highlights, you'll see excerpts from several of the presentations and discussions. You'll also see a presentation that I shared on the, the state of the industry as we see it in the world of logistics and supply chain from our vantage point. So that must have been usually a tough sell getting people to go down to West Palm in January. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And Ben, this was great. I really do appreciate you taking the time. And this was fantastic information. Thank you. Well, Joe, thank you. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. You ask great questions. You understand this industry extremely well. You've been doing it for a long time, as have I. And if I can be helpful to your audience on anything related to what we've discussed, by all means, I'd be happy to help. Where we tend to be the best fit is CEOs and owners of companies that are either running high growth companies in the supply chain world, doing five to 20 million or more of recurring revenue, or 
supply chain services companies doing 5 to 20 million or more of EBITDA and looking for a partner for growth. The guy that just wants to cash out and go away, probably not the best fit for us, although happy to meet and talk. The guy that's excited about, or gal, that's excited about what he or she has built and maybe wants some liquidity, but also wants a partner for growth, that's nine times out of 10, the right kind of fit for us. But regardless of the numbers, people that are building great businesses in supply chain, those are the kinds of people that we want to meet and we like to think we could be a great fit for. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate you taking the time and I hope you'll come back and do it again. And thank all of you for listening to the podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 